0: The thing that has prompted me to think so deeply and heavily about this is like, that's it, guys. We're out of bullets. If ayahuasca and if conscious sexuality and if deep embodiment and if personal growth and if speech acts and language and all this shit we've all been spending so much time and effort doing is not enough to turn us into servants of God, then we, we dropped a stitch someplace.
1: That's Jamie Wheel, co-author of the best-selling book, Stealing Fire. And this is episode 209 of Wellness Force Radio. What's up, my friend? It's your host, Josh Trent. And welcome back to another episode for your weekly access to global experts in all things wellness as we discover the physical and emotional intelligence we need to live life well. What's up, everyone? This episode is fire. Stealing fire, that is. I got to meet Jamie Wheel, the co-author of the best-selling book Stealing Fire, at his house in Austin, Texas, to talk about one of the biggest revolutions that you've never heard of that's actually hiding in plain sight. Over the past decades, some of the highest performers in the world have been harnessing rare and controversial states of consciousness to solve critical challenges and outperform the competition. We're going deep on this one today, what it means to be in flow state, how to actually steal fire, what that means, and so much more. Now, before we get into the show, I want to thank IntelliSkin for sponsoring these physical intelligence shows every Friday. They're a huge part of why you and I get to spend time together, and they make some pretty incredible postural smart compression products, including the Posture Q, this smart compression top that pulls your shoulders back so you can perform better, men or women, throughout the day or at work. If you haven't tried this smart compression that pulls those shoulders back, if you feel like neck pain throughout the day or you slump with your posture... Give this a test drive, this tactile response over at IntelliSkin.net and actually use code WF20. They gave our entire audience 20% off the entire cart. So that's code WF20 at IntelliSkin.net today. Now, make sure you're buckled up for this podcast Jamie's mind is a synaptic fury, to say the least, of intelligence around all things body, mind, and spirit, which is perfect, where we dive deep into the physical and emotional intelligence we need to live life well. Yet for many people, myself included, the journey is always filled with moments where with as much as we know, sometimes we can tend to feel like we don't know that much, which begs a question. After practicing, meditation, doing yoga, exercising, and eating the right foods, Doing all the tactical things in your life that elicit personal growth, including the potential of plant medicines or psychedelics to achieve flow state, do you ever feel like something is still missing from within? We're talking about this on the podcast today, how to unlock greater states of flow, Jamie's take on decades of research. In flow states, working with Fortune 50 companies and elite military fighters. And not just the what, when it comes to the tools for achieving higher performance and greater states of flow, but one of the most important pieces of the how and the why that most people miss, and that's the integration process. We're exploring this integration process. What Jamie's learned by achieving these altered states of consciousness or higher states of consciousness through holotropic breathing, specific exercise, even plants— or anything else when altering your mental state, Jamie has actually created a hedonic calendaring system that allows form to follow function when we look at living a life of greater freedom and flow. Now, as you will catch on pretty quick, Jamie unfolds concepts fast with his linguistics. So don't even try to take notes. We've taken them for you over at wellnessforce.com forward slash 209 to get all the links and resources mentioned in today's show. Now, coming up, we're unpacking the history of this altered state's economy, what that actually is, why it's so important, and how it goes back to almost the beginning of our species, what a Promethean is and how you can become a stronger one, how we can use certain flow state tools to overcome the constant stimulation that's always plaguing our attention, why attending ayahuasca ceremonies will not give you some kind of golden ticket in its own right, how it takes the integration and the deeper work comes after these ceremonies. We'll also talk about an interesting concept that Jamie describes as 80-20 woke to broke for sustainable levels of exploration towards higher consciousness and a controversial stance from Jamie that may rub you the wrong way or may resonate deeply, depending on who you are and what your background is, Jamie actually sees himself as a servant of God, to be a good father, a good husband, and a strong leader in the Flow Genome organization. Now, when I say God, I don't mean a bearded man that lives in the sky, but a higher intelligence that is guiding all of us if we're willing to listen. And as you listen to this podcast today, remind yourself to take deep breaths, visualize how Jamie's experiences working with top performers across the world to achieve these flow states will also apply to your world, the one you live inside your mind, and the one that you live outside your body to the people that you care about. All right, let's go down for the deep dive in Austin, Texas with Jamie Wheel. The fascinating thing to me is Walmart is now carrying Stealing Fire, yeah. which is, it's, it blows my mind because I'm thinking, isn't Walmart part of the system that doesn't like the Grateful Dead, that doesn't oh, yeah. enjoy these uh, media around ultra-states of consciousness? Yeah. Uh, how did
0: that make you feel, man? Well, I mean, it's that whole sort of dress straight and infiltrate, you know. What I mean, my 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 thought is uh, a, you know, like yeehaw, isn't that funny? Um, and B, they have no idea what they've got on their shelves. Um, so you know, you've planted a seed of deeper
1: consciousness within one of the biggest media places in the world.
0: Yeah, which which was uh, you know arguably, uh, as Stephen and I sat down to write it, we had to ask ourselves, well, what is our narrative voice going to be? Like, what position are we going to take in this in this story? Are we going to be Promethean advocates? So we going to say, hell yeah, guys, this is coming. It's rad. It's awesome. Come on in. Or are we going to be, you know, dispassionate reporters? Are we going to be kind of academic? Where do we sit in the story? Because it's going to make a big difference on the tone we take and how we position everything. And so, we really felt like there's just no way you can come across as an advocate because you will lose everybody in the middle. They'll be like those fuckers drank the cool a little while back. They are not reliable witnesses. Yeah. So we ended up creating a story and even sequencing the story. I mean, the way the fact that we very deliberately led with the Navy SEALs. That's heartland steak and potato shit. You can't say no to that. we followed with Google. Everybody knows Google, but you've slipped in and seated Burning Man, but you balance it with four trillion dollars in a market economy. So you're like, holy shit. You know, then you go into the personal why would I care with like the Jason Silver stories and then put you know chapter three was like, and here's why you might have missed it, here's the pales, here's why this has happened outside the pales, here's church, state, and the body. But then we even end it with, oh, and by the way, those pails are needed. You don't want to get lost. That's dangerous terrain. So we've we were constantly constantly. constantly engaging in kind of like, Argue, you know, like rhetorical ju- judo such that no one ever felt they had to pull against us, mm. <laughs> you know. Yes. Um, but the ult- what we realized in the end was like it was the ultimate Promethean trick of all because Prometheus was a trickster. Yes, and Prometheus a- is
1: actually who stole the fire and gave For it back sure. to the people. Yeah. Uh, how has that played a role in your storytelling? When did you yeah. actually find out about Prometheus? Why does that inspire you so much?
0: Well, I mean, well, and, and, and just to finish this thread, which was you realized it was the ultimate Promethean trickster move of all to pretend that we were 100% neutral journalistic reporters just wandering through this terrain. We weren't at all. Of course, we were. fucking <laughs> bastards. Yeah. And I was like, okay, now that's when I felt good. I was like, yes, this is, this is congruent. Like, let's, let's be super sly so that, and, and, and one of the res, res, most consistent responses we had was people giving it to skeptical family members, often parents, you know, from, from more conservative generations and being like, this finally let them get a sense of who I was. Or what I cared about. And so, as far as like, that to me felt like mission accomplished. Yeah. Is that we were extending and validating permission to consider these things. It's almost as if you've
1: literally planted seeds over the enemy wall Mm -hmm. and they're growing now and there's nothing they
0: can really do about it. This is the true kind of undercurrent of being a Promethean. For sure. For sure. It was definitely on the down low and bundle. I mean, I I would say if, if there's been any consistent theme in my life, it is creating, um, classical arguments for radical conclusions. Um, and so that's why, you know, and that, that Alcibiades conversation about him stealing Kaikion, like I remember coming across that 20 years ago. And it's literally like, it's, it's, there's just snippets of it in the actual court reporting from Athens. And you're like, wait a second, wait a second. Some motherfucker stole the secret ingredients to the most persistent ecstatic ritual ever known in history and had a house party like like literally like that to me was just the the opening salvo in in architecting the whole story and how lucky are we that it was recorded i mean a yeah. lot of this
1: work too so for people that don't know this promethean history uh who was that
0: when was that and why is it so damn important well i mean you know the original og story is you know uh, Zeus was battling the Titans. He defeats the Titans all except for two brothers, Prometheus and Epimetheus. Prometheus means forethought, Epimetheus means afterthought. Those guys then get tasked with building mankind. Epimetheus is a bit ADD and spastic. He starts building out all the animals made of clay and he gives them all the gifts that Zeus had, had allotted them, you know, so they're fast, they're 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 sharp, they're they're, they're what they, fairy whatever they are. And and Prometheus is like takes his time molding man in the image of the gods. But by the time he's done, his brother has given away all the superpowers. So, he's like, well, these guys are fucked, man. They don't have any, they don't have a chance. So, he goes to Zeus and he's like, look, dude, these guys need fire. I'm going to be able to take fire from Olympus and give them to them because otherwise they're going to be cold, naked, slow, dumb, and, and and they won't last long. And Zeus says, no way in hell, man. That's, that is divine fire. And, you know, the, what most people know is Prometheus steals that fire. He gives it to mankind. And it's not just literally heat uh, or combustion it's civilization technology art medicine culture and language so it's literally in some respect consciousness divine consciousness but the fire was really the the spark that lit everything yeah absolutely both both literally and metaphorically literally. and 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 of course zeus then punishes him he gets chained to a rock he has his insides torn out by eagles every day for eternity until he later in the sort of mythologies gets freed and and the idea there is like okay so um what is that Promethean impulse? What is that desire to bring that which has been set aside, that which has been rendered taboo or out of reach, um, bring it down to mankind? Yeah. And it feels like that impulse—you could make a case—is also the entrepreneurial impulse, right? I mean, it, at its root, the entrepreneur means to bring forth. And so, I think that there's there's interesting parallels between uh, between those two things, and and there's also there's a fascinating kind of like like uh, sort of Hellenic tradition, so the kind of ancient Greeks against the Hebraic and, and the Judeo-Christians. So, like in the Greek stuff, you have Prometheus, who is a very much a stand-in for the Christ concept, like the, the martyr who brings the boon or the gift of, you know, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, like brings the boon to mankind and mm-hmm. then pays the price forever. Right on our behalf, and then and then the Greeks have Icarus, right? Who is the you know hubris, pride? He flies too close to the sun. He aspires to be like the gods, and then his you know his his melting wax and feathers brown, and you know off down he goes. And that's that's like Lucifer. So you have Christ Lucifer in the Judeo-Christian tradition. You have Prometheus Icarus in the Greek traditions, and you're like holy shit. That I need mean, to do a Jordan Peterson. Like therefore, those archetypes are eternal, <laughs> right? Yes. Um. And and I think that that is a fascinating inquiry which is what is the balance in these like static techniques and technologies and that brings us back to our original inquiry which is why are they so fucking unstable yes and why do they always go pear-shaped uh so consistently and and that to me is literally and and, and of course not just two point fingers or to tut tut and moralize because everybody feels good when icarus crashes and burns you know, um, and, and in fact, I mean, even Elon Musk right now, right? I mean, look at the backlash on Musk sure. and how much schadenfreude is locked into that. Like, yay, Tony Stark he's going to save the world. Fuck you, Elon, you pulled a Trump and now you shat the bed. Yes. Right, and people pile on, and we sort of reenact this. I mean, even you know, and and Jordan Peterson is showing some stress cracks sure. of carrying this load, or even uh, Conor
1: McGregor, right, mm, with his recent mm, debacle. Yeah, people praised him, and now those very same people are probably turning this
0: sword to the other side. Michael Jackson, Amy Winehouse. You're yes. like, okay, so we love it when people stand so close to the light that they become translucent. We 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 pay anything. We we mob them, and we and we absolutely. Um, Fetishize them, and yet we are merciless when the light starts to consume them. Being a Promethean in this uh, modern age,
1: this tech focused age, not so easy. Mm. Uh, I think that one of the ways that we can be a stronger Promethean would be through altered states. There's an altered states economy, uh, $4 billion, $4 trillion, what's Four, that? Trillion. $4 trillion. Dollars. <laughs> what is the altered states economy for people that
0: don't know, man? Yeah, so we just tried to figure out, okay, oh, you know, how much of a there there is there yeah. in this contemporary revolution? And, and we basically thought, okay, look, um, this notion of ecstasis, meaning just peak states that take you outside yourself, that help you shift from waking normal into something else, you know, presumably preferable. Um, and so we, we looked at it from the kind of the neuroscience level, uh, you know, shift in neuroelectric, what are your brain waves doing a shift in what parts of your brain are turning on and off shift in hormonal profiles, cardiac states, all that kind of stuff. So we kind of had a relatively objective set of criteria. And then we looked at said, okay, what industries or how do we spend our time and money? And which of which of these industries credibly live in that category? Like that, that's the primary reason we do it, the main reason we go to a rock concert, or the main reason we gamble. We don't gambling is not a wealth strategy. You know, gambling yes. is because I want the hit. Mm-hmm. I want that feeling. And almost everybody ends up losing the money they come with and they keep coming back and doing it again and again. Why do we watch online pornography, right? It's not to get laid. It's not to pass on our genes, right? It's to shift our state of consciousness. So, with everything from gambling to pornography to self-help and personal development and therapy to obviously all the licit and illicit drugs, anything we do to shift states, we, kind of, we, we counted as part of that economy. And it's, it's a quarter- of the US's national GDP. The thing that blows me away,
1: and I'm really excited digging with you about pornography because we're seeing this really, not just from Gary Wilson's work with your brain on porn, but mm. this seeking of novelty. How it's baked and built into this uh, hedonism that I think is kind of naturally wired within us. Mm-hmm. But yet one thing I'm fascinated to talk to you about is the calendaring of this. And we'll dig into that, to that a little bit later. But one of the things that I loved in your book, man, Stealing Fire, by periodically losing our minds, we stand a better chance of finding ourselves.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, just take that for exactly what it is. It's such a window into why we're actually here, Mm-hmm. You know, and most people don't want to go within. So this going within through the ecstasy. Um, mm-hmm. How did you even find this line of going within through ecstasy? When did this start for you? Like, if you looked back
0: on the timeline, I would say probably age eighteen. I mean, it was in college. I was the classic angry young man looking for something more enduring and and true than what I was seeing around me and culture, teachers, peers. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I had a I had a Guy on my hall, it was a biology major and and his professor was probably a, you know, barely reconstructed hippie and mycologist and out back in the farm fields behind our dorms where we're growing you know after a rainy spring day we're growing some mushrooms and he swore to us blind that these were actually safe we weren't going to die all these kind of things so we we, we, we nibbled on some and uh, and that was the and i was like oh wow you know not unlike william james's experience holy shit you know separated by the flimsiest of avails lie realms of consciousness heretofore unknown i was like oh this feels r- real This feels like what I had been actually hoping slash dying for life to be. And then I spent the rest of my high school career having those experiences at night and then translating them into scholarship and research by day. So, I was sort of articulating, trying, trying to ground out, what the hell is this? What is this lineage? What is this tradition? Where did this all come from? Where did it start? And it felt like, and that was just became the most amazing adventure story to try and trace and track, and, and literally trying to piece together this sort of serpentine lineage across time and space and cultures. And it really does feel that way. It disappears, it pops up, it skips continents, it shows up, but it's, it's persistent. Through human history. And so, that I think has just, stealing fire from me was just trying to get down the last quarter century of my own learning as to where the hell did this stuff all come from.
1: So, when did you and Stephen Kotler actually link up and kind of co-create the idea for the book?
0: Well, it's interesting because I, I had helped Stephen a lot with his prior book, Rise of Superman. And and which was all about flow and action sports and 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 he was like he was getting ready to kind of want to start writing this next one. And I'm like, dude, I'm I'm not doing that again. I'm not I'm not going to be the Cyrano de Bergerac, <laughs> you know. What is but, the Cyrano de Bergerac. Uh, so he he was the one who whispers to. He, he's got his giant nose and he whispers poetry and love songs to his friend, who then falls oh, in love okay. with I think with I've the seen woman. That in the play sometime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and I think I mean think I think Steve Martin did a version of it with Gerard Depardieu. Okay. Um, but but that you know. But in any of it, I wasn't going to be the 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 sort of ecstasy whisperer. Uh, behind the, I was like, if "We're going to do this. Let's do it together, and we'll and we'll fucking yeah. lay this out." So, um, so that's what we did. And, and really, uh, to to Stephen's eternal credit, he really let me steer and drive this because I mean, that story, the the historical, anthropological kind of mystery tradition story, was very much one that had been alive for me. Stephen was mostly focused on the neuroscience side of things, um, but together, you know, I think I think the book ended up being um, stronger for stronger for both of those. Yeah perspectives. We uh, beat you, the shit out of each other, right? You both it, but, yeah.
1: bring such a unique vantage point of the world with you know your academia versus his. Mm-hmm. I think that's when true co-creation exists, when people mm-hmm. come from these huge industries, yet they so blend together. And I look at the way that ecstasis is explained. I think it's really your narrative. I believe that Stealing Fire has recreated the narrative of ecstasis mm-hmm. in our modern world. And for a lot of people that don't know this, it could be meditation, it could be breath work, binaural beats, lucialite, float tank, I made a big list. Pharmacological Psychological, specific exercise, psychedelics, transcranial direct stimulation, which is fascinating, like the halo device, Mm -hmm. uh, and also wellness technologies. But is there one that you're actually leaning into
0: now for these practices, these tools for achieving uh, a different state? Yeah, interesting. I mean, that's going to be the the whole subject of my next book, Uh, Recapture the Rapture, which is basically, I mean, interestingly, I'm actually going to be coming out as a voice for conservatism pretty surely (laughs) um so i I think that uh the whole i mean yeah well that's we'll come back to that in a a bit but um basically i would say that the most potent and and anti-fragile you know the ones that are least susceptible to corruption and or repression would be respiration embodied cognition and sexuality talk to us about embodied cognition well just the idea that um well i mean if you want to really like the things i'm super interested in right now like which i think are the untapped uh air arenas of focus that i have i just have not seen broadly in the research but i'm super twigged onto them and like just always tracking will be um delta wave brain activity i think that the redheaded stepchild of the eeg scene everybody's Fixated on alpha and theta, um, but waking delta is something that virtually nobody's studying. And since we know via nitrous oxide that that is what's happening in that state, and we know that is creating all kinds of rad experiences, fascinating. I mean, you can literally, if you stack these, you can create a five meo DMT experience in fifteen minutes at home with yourself and kitchen materials. Via what tools? We we can get into that, but (laughs) Um, so so delta wave activity, vagal nerve tone, and myofascia. And if you play with those three things, so the vagal nerve goes from your brain to your heart to your root, and it is basically the metronome of your entire nervous system and autonomic responses, inflammation, well-being, all kinds of things, um, and, and fascia in the sense that it's the sort of sliding surfaces and connective tissue of our musculature and ligaments. Yeah. And my sense is, is that it forms a function. I mean, the, there are some of the more sophisticated bodyworkers i'm aware of uh, are spending more and more time on fascia and thinking of it a little bit like mycelial networks in forests you know so like the way that the mushroom network connects between the roots of all the trees yes. and it transmits information and nutrients and all kinds of cool stuff it kind of feels like fascia in our in our bodily system serves in a similar way and and it is massively neglected, not understood, and that by coordinating and and aligning and optimizing our sliding surfaces, and as they communicate and connect, that that is a huge, huge level up in embodied awareness. So embodied cognition just means Our bodies and brains affect our hearts and minds and that thinking doesn't just happen above the neck
1: oh you're talking to the right people man because this this physical and emotional connection we've explored so much i was at the hurley event uh with michael gervais which is on the board for flow genome Mm -hmm. uh, such an integral part of what you guys have created and there were so many people from rock tape who do the myofascial release and they talked about this here and i'm i'm thinking back to a paul Stamets episode that i heard on joe rogan and he was like yeah the biggest organism in the world is actually the mycelium Mm -hmm. so if what your research is showing that the mycelium and this Network of the fashion or body, mm-hmm. is it really the same thing?
0: Well, I mean it's an analogy, but I think it's a fairly strong one. You know, yeah. so like in the same way that the roots could be our ligaments, the, and and the trunks and branches are our bones, you know, skeletal structures and those yeah. kind of things. Um, I think I think it's a fascinating analog. And in that respect, um, yeah, I mean, the bottom line is is that, you know, in fact, there's Gil Headley, I think is the fellow's name, who, who wrote a kind of underground, or, or he shot a video on YouTube. It's kind of an underground classic called The Fuzz Speech. And he is, he's an anatomist, but he has got a cadaver, a human cadaver in front of him. And he's pulling, cutting open the muscles and showing these things. He's like, fuzz is time. So, he talks about fuzz being where fascia gets bound whenever we have an injury. And so, uh, and, and then it basically inhibits the sliding surfaces while we're trying to mend that area but then obviously the sad part is it doesn't unless you bust it up it stays yeah so we end up literally he's like fuzz is time and fuzz is also trauma and so if we can if we can bring our bodies back into the present moment like very few of us our bodies are even present. We're limping, we're imbalanced, we're out of whack. Our kinetic chains have been broken and fucked up from years of imbalances and compensation. Mm -hmm. So our bodies aren't even actually in the present moment. But if we can, if you treat fuzz as time and you're like, oh, let me just bring me up to the present, let me release the trauma stored in those systems, I have a greater chance of being emotionally and and relationally present as well. This is why people cry in yoga. This is
1: why I myself have had like a bioenergetic session where I was like, why is there tears coming out of my eyes? What does this actually mean?
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's related to this system in the body. 100%. And when you boost energy through your system via any of the ecstatic means, via breath work, via movement, via myofascial release, via sexual orgasm and culmination via psychedelics, via whatever it would be, you have more juice going through your circuits and it tends to disclose more information about where you're impeded. So my, ex- you know, the, the position we would advance about extasis is it does consistently two things and it shows you your sort of highest potential. Like what it, the way the world ought to be, the way I could be, those kind of things. And it also shows us where we're broken. It's like an electrician running juice through a circuit and being like, oh yeah, right there, right? There's impedance or you've yes. got a blown fuse or whatever. And and it's not, it is not woo in the slightest to say, hey, a physical impedance at the level of your muscular scale or, or just your, your neurophysiology mm-hmm. um, also contains emotional content also contains just metabolic content except, you know, and, and on up. And if you can release it at a more foundational level, that you may not have to process it nearly as much at the psychological level, let's Do you say. feel
1: like Stan Groff's work in breathing, holotropic mm-hmm. breathing, my first session was five years ago, I've done it many times since. Do you feel like this could be the same thing where through that somatic awareness, whether somebody's being touched or doing a deep dive holotropic breathing session, mm-hmm. that the same healing
0: result could actually exist? I mean, yes and, and this is where I was talking about sort of ending up a little bit more on the conservative side of things these days. is just, I mean, necessary but not sufficient. So, I do think that like boosting our overall vitality, and I do think that using those those experiences to reset our nervous system, so we're not experiencing chronic fibrillating micro-PTSD. Which feels like how most of us are these days, especially with our phones and you know social media and all this kind of stuff. Our systems are just constantly overwhelmed yep. in ways we're not designed to. Like no humans ever have ever had this amount, this bit stream. It's almost like a constant drip of stress. Like we have an IV and there's mm-hmm. a constant drip, one constant. drip at a time. Hundred percent. Which is why everybody's so reactive, and why there's so many, why there's so many culture wars going on right now. People are just locked and loaded to lose their shit, and they just need the tiniest excuse to to vent. So if we instead of doing that, which is a very dysfunctional way of trying to regulate our nervous systems, if instead you have a peak experience. So most ecstatic experiences are death practices in some way that that you're dying to the moment, you're dying to your self sense. You know, psychedelics is ego death, and sexuality is la petite mort, the little death. You know. There's all sorts of these these experiences. Um, holotropic breathing does the same thing. You know, it's like turning on and then powering back on your laptop when you've had it open. It usually Which, fixes it, most things. Yeah, it usually fixes most things. Now, now the key is is that you know when you were speaking, hey, does holotropic breathing do this, or does do any of these ecstatic practices kind of do they solve it for us? No. like we still have to do the work on our laptop. like it's just gonna not be as buggy as it was. So I think there's a real. These days, and it seems like it's been pretty consistent, is that when people tap in to peak states, they just want to keep tapping in. And that bliss junkie state-seeking element um, is almost overwhelming. And we almost always get sidetracked by going back and having more of that awesome than holding it really um, efficiently. And 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 realizing, okay, that gave me some clarity. Now I'm going to work with that clarity for weeks, for months, for a year, whatever it would be, Yeah. Um, and absolutely suck the marrow out of it. Versus, hey, let's do it again next weekend. And and that to me, so then that you see that with Vim Hof, you see, you know, I mean, his his respiration is kind of you know, obviously you know the holotropic craze of today. Sure. And how many people are truly using i mean i think people are using it positively there are people who are you know responding to like hey i just feel more alive i feel more vital i'm juiced that's all great um and how many additional people are just like i just want to feel i just want to feel high i just want to feel something i just want to feel alive i just want to and 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 there's not necessarily a, a point or an outcome yes
1: this is, I'm so glad we're talking about this because I've explored with psychedelics. I've done breath work. I've done the 20X that we talked about before mm, we recorded. Mm. So I love going to these spaces where I can go within and I can see mm-hmm. what's real because in this environment, we're so clouded by this constant stimulation that's around us. Like you mentioned, how do we be even begin to use these tools when we look at psychedelics? Mm. Um, I know that psychedelics is something that you said you're going to
0: be more conservative moving forward for a little bit, but are you still going to- I think I've always been. I just, I mean, that's maybe not what folks would take uh, from, well, I mean, I I think we were cautionary in Stealing Fire. There were a number of places we let the air out of the balloon, for sure, on purpose. So,
1: I look at the way that people can even begin the exploration, Mm -hmm. uh, and it brings up the psychiatrist Humphrey Osmond. He defined this psychedelic renaissance as mind manifesting, compounds that help the mind manifest its deepest qualities. Yeah which I think is really a, a clear lens to see this. It's like, what's in there
0: is in there whether you explore it or not. So, why don't we just explore it? Yeah. I mean, if, if I had to sort of write a prescription for culture, um, like how ought we or might we, uh, I think um, it would be a bell curve. And it would be, look, folks, sorry to sorry to rain on the parade, however... There's, there's probably a relatively predictable distribution of how we should integrate psychedelics. Just take that as an example because of Pollan's book and the kind of current emphasis on it. 10% of the population should never touch the fucking things. Only 10% of the population should ever do them more than once or twice. And a massive curve in the middle should engage with them at specific, highly structured, and restricted points in their lives. At, at an adolescent coming of age, a marriage and union, a death, and that's it. And if you think about any indigenous use ever, they were always tightly circumscribed and controlled in those ways, and no one just had open and free access. And, and I mean, the Elysian Mysteries was once a goddamn year, and doing what Alcibiades did was punishable in pain at death. And that 's how that thing persisted for two thousand years, so in our egalitarian libertarian, nobody tells me what to do everybody's spiritual but not religious, and everybody gets to follow their bliss and see what happens I think is <laughs> madly contraindicated with the tools yeah. that we now have access to and there is also and, and I think we 're running up against value systems because there is that. I mean, same with polyamory and all the kind of open relating and all these kind of things in the relational sexual space as well, which is on the one hand, from a secular humanist point of view, the less shame, the less guilt, the less repression, the more choice, the more freedom, the more access we have. In general, we, we value in the secular humanist framework as, as an expanding good. You can, you can make the same case for you know access to psychedelics and all these things. This is liberating and libertarian. But what's happening is that we are, in fact, playing with fire we are playing with tools and techniques that actually enter the realm of Tantra in the case of sexual experimentation and the realm of shamanism in the case of psychedelic experimentation. And those have very different rule sets and very different norms and very different cautions. So if you're just out seeking experience and you want to be engaged in consensual, ethical, you know, banging lots of people, have at it. Sure. But if on the other hand, you're actually accidentally opening up, states and stages of consciousness that you wouldn't otherwise normally have access to, but you're doing it with like a, yay, woohoo, it's all good. It's not all good. And you need to be way the hell more careful. And, the, sa- and the same thing with the ayahuasca backlash, right? I mean, you've got ayahuasca tourism, you've got all f- kinds of folks going down to Peru. You got, I mean, you've got people, cause of, uh, largely because of Joe Rogan, you've got a bunch of like CrossFit MMA boys just yeah. like banging down DMT vaporizers. Which they have no right? idea what they're going towards. No idea what they're going down. And, and let's just assume for the sake of argument, just an if, if any of these practices, do actually open up non-ordinary states of reality, then this is fools rushing in where angels fear to tread. And we now have way the hell more people entering and op- opening up realms of existence and reality and consequence that they have no fucking understanding of. This is like, this is like kooks showing up at Jaws to toe-in surfing because their buddy's got a jet ski <laughs> and they're on vacation on Maui. It also and reminds
1: me like, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, where in the Indiana Jones film, when the yeah. light shined out of it, I mean, it was similar to that
0: as well. I, Dude, I used, I used the Ark of the Covenant as, a, as, an, a, as, as an image all the time, because, you know, in John Lilly, the, you know, classic psychonaut, he said, he said, cosmic love is ruthless and utterly indifferent. It teaches you its lessons, whether you want them or not. And when people talk about, you know, jaw love and cosmic love and the universe is nothing but love, you're like, really? yeah, maybe, maybe, but be careful of what kind of love. This is not mm. like fluffy bunnies and Valentine's hearts. This is Ark of the Covenant, burning bush kind of love. Yes. And, and it is ruthless and utterly
1: indifferent. So then why do 32 million Americans, as you wrote about in your book, use psychedelics? It's one in 10 people.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a pile. Um, I mean, I think, you know, as the, the study that we cited said, it was it was for introspection, uh, for transcendence, and yeah. for increased insight and meaning, which that to me seems great. Um, and that is, that is super encouraging. But a question that I've, you know, Rick Doblin and I have gone back and forth on several times is, help me understand the seeming wild ass drop off from the one to three therapeutically assisted psychedelic sessions that appears to be doing such great things for people suffering from trauma and the 33 or the 303 uh, sessions of ravers and burners and everybody else where you're like, you know, or people who proudly say they've had 60 ayahuasca sessions and you're like, why? Yeah. Like, what have you got? Like, like it is no longer linear. It's definitely not exponential. And in fact, you've just gone asymptotic. Like, you're never getting any closer to the thing you were seeking in the first place. And you're way upside down on the Pareto split. It's you know? it's really about
1: the integration. Then I mean, because if these people have done sixty ceremonies, mm. then there's no way they've integrated unless yeah.
0: they're going down the route of being a shaman themselves. Yeah, which is an easy cop out. And and also that when that intersects with the info marketing space, you get some real, you get some full money changes in the temple kind of shit where you get people who really have no business presume claiming authority on any other stuff turning around and selling it to the greater fools behind them and that to me is criminal um and we and and that that yeah that (laughs) yeah (laughs) but isn't there still
1: a part of you that's happy that there's a bigger lens on psychedelics on this ecstasis on exploring these states because at least it's bringing up the conversation um i think that
0: Intellectually, we are ill-prepared for the states we're disclosing. So it feels like the level of social discourse these days and the level of lineage understandings, the level of cross-cultural analysis and and a lot of just good old-fashioned homework is simply not being done. You know, when you, when you hear people being like, oh yeah, I've been at, I've been, I'm deeply experienced in ayahuasca. I've been at, studying it for years. I mean, it was that 2011 National Geographic article. I remember that was my 1st like, are you fucking kidding me? Like that was the first time you came across it and you're positioning yourself as an elder? Mm. You know, like, like yes. it, it's ludicrous. So to me, like coming from mountaineering and guiding and, and, and surf rescue and those kind of things, I always just think of like in the outdoor industry, you do not position yourself as a high-altitude Himalayan guide until you've put up some serious ascents yourself, until you've apprenticed with other people, until you have your avalanche training and your wilderness medicine training. Like, you know your shit. And then and only then is there a very reality-tested uh, up, you know, progression up the ranks to guide. And in the spaces of sexuality, in the spaces of psychedelics, and the spaces of personal growth, you have everybody and their fucking mother you know basically being like hey man if i'm if this is like this is like the the teacher who's like you don't have to know everything you just have to be one you know one night ahead in the reading from your students it's kind of that and there's no validation or falsification of people's cred and so we end up with an awful lot of of pretenders showing up as as spokespeople and that doesn't end well that never ends well yeah so you know one model that, I, that I, gives me some kind of hope. So I, back to the notion of like the bell curve and like who should have access. Um, there's a, there is a tribe in New Guinea who has like a nine level initiatory stack and it's based on three substances. It's ginger, tobacco and mushrooms and so there are, and, and which is weird you wouldn't be like ginger yeah, ginger. sounds like an interesting tea it is but so there's like three levels of ginger uh, in- initiation and, and basically and it's, it's like Montessori classroom like you can use anything you want provided you've already been introduced to it formally so you go through three levels of ginger three levels of tobacco and then varying degrees of intensely psychedelic mushrooms, but it's a pyramid so that the ninth level is the equivalent of being invited into your PhD. So, fewer and fewer people get initiated into the highest levels. You have to kind of earn your way in. But what I found equally, so that's super cool. And then the other fascinating thing is that the people who are initiated into the ninth level, their realizations, like their quote-unquote downloads, are considered living scripture. And they get added to their sacred texts so, in contrast to Christianity, let's say, where if, if you know, St. John of the Cross or Teresa of Avila, you know, or, or any of these mystics had their breakthroughs, they get burned at the fucking stake as heretics, <laughs> right? yeah. like the old. The, like the, there's a door that goes slamming shut after the formation of these religions, and then anybody else who claims to have direct access to God gets whacked by the priests. And instead, there's this sense of hey, there's a ratcheting progression. You can, you can, you are then initiated into responsible use of the ones you've been in, you've been brought into. Beyond that, you don't get to play unless you're invited up. And but then at the top levels, those who are who are initiating those levels get to be. Co co authoring, the community the community. Story. I'm so
1: glad you're bringing this up because there are people even in the Encinitas community. They're like, "Oh, I'm I'm called by the medicine to four," oh, yeah, and yeah. I'm like, "No, you're not." Yeah, open up a big old can and shut the fuck up. Yeah, you've yeah. only <laughs> been two years exploring this, right? So I think we're still, you know, we're half beast, half spirit, Jamie. We're trying to figure out, like, okay, yeah. our ego is in one part of it, our spiritual exploration, and figuring out why the hell we're on this spinning rock is in another. Yes. and so we are
0: fighting and sometimes dancing with the ego massively. And and it feels to me like there's a there's a there's an element. It's a little bit like uh, you've probably seen the news pieces on the increase in super viruses that that, that are just happening, right, medically, because for several decades, doctors have just been over-prescribing antibiotics. Yes. Because basically, they realize that if I don't prescribe, even if, like, I know you've got something viral, I know an antibiotic doesn't work for it, I'm going to prescribe it for you anyway because you're happy and you go home and you give me good ratings on my health insurance. It's a game that the doctors play. If I actually try to educate you, you're going to be pissed off, you're going to go home and you're going to slam me. So here's the script. And as a result, we have actually been training and growing extra, uh, you know, extra antibiotic resistant viruses. We create super viruses and, and it feels like something similar is happening in the psychedelic community where we are creating super egos. The very medicine that is supposed to get rid of our egos is never, we're never quite finishing our courses of medicine. We're ah. stopping at 10 days when we had to go to 14. We haven't, allergy. we haven't obliterated and they come back stronger and more resistant than ever. And so, the Encinitas community, the Marin, San Francisco community, the Boulder community, the New York City Robot hug. community, community, all these places, right, where they are sense of like, we are the leather and feather beautiful fucking people. We fuck when we want, we trip when we want, we throw the baddest ass parties and aren't we just goddamn amazing on Instagram. And and that has created, I think, something that is potentially like a a, a terminal cul-de-sac in the growth of these communities. Because on the one hand, they are closest to the garden gate. They are without a doubt. They have had access to the most powerful, potent, and integrated, blended uh, techniques of ecstasy that humans have ever had anywhere. Period. Yeah. And yet, how many fuckers do you know that are like, oh yeah, I've done five MEO like three, five times, or like we're doing another medicine journey, blah 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 blah. And they they haven't changed. Yeah. Their personality typography, whatever, is exactly the same as five years ago. It might even be a little bit more smug and insufferable. Absolutely. And you're like, sweet Jesus, like that is that's it. I mean and I and I shared this at a, at, a, at a conference last week but like the thing that has prompted me to think so deeply and heavily about this is like that's it guys we're out of bullets like if if 5-MeO and if ayahuasca and if conscious sexuality and if deep embodiment and if personal growth and if speech acts and language and all this shit we've all been spending so much time and effort doing is not enough to turn us into servants of god then we we dropped a stitch someplace. This is so
1: powerful, man. I feel like you dropped a universal mic right now and everyone listening <laughs> uh, because this exploration I don't think there's any more powerful tools for whether you want to call it ecstasis altered states than ayahuasca I've had the most healing in my life and I'm committed and I've talked about this on the podcast to the integration
0: process now, it's, it's the integration you know, where people are missing integration and service and I mean and once again there's nothing new under the sun right I mean yoga is an eight limbed path it's not just lemon butts you yeah. know and, and, and it's about right livelihood right, right living right. you know I, I feel like karma yoga like service to the least of my brother's like the whole 80/20 woke to broke is is something i've been kind of playing with which is the idea that pers- you know you get 80% of your bang for your buck on ecstatic technologies with the first 20% of your involvement but because that first 20% feels so outsizedly rewarding most people just continue going and then they start investing 80% of their time and money to go chasing the long tail of the 20% which is you know asymptotic it's forever just kind of like you're never going to get there you can always ch- you can chase it forever yeah. and And that's fine if you're just a trust funder living on an island, but it becomes the opportunity cost to a society where so many are suffering. becomes selfish to the point of unconscionable. And so, the idea of like, if we just say, hey, 80% woke is good enough, and in fact, that might be all we ever get to presume. 20% broke is the human experience. Let's be open to it. Yeah. Let's grieve fully. Let 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 us let us you know let us be fully awake to that, and not chasing one more journey, one more peak experience, one one more bauble or blinky shiny thing that we tell ourselves is going to give us all the money we want, all the love we want, all the caring concern we want, and if we can only get there then life is forever effortless and easy. Life isn't. We are 3D creatures for eight decades. I'm
1: thinking about, you know, Willy Wonka, there's the golden ticket. And I think some people approach, Jamie, these psychedelics as the golden ticket. It's like the ultimate golden ticket. It's not true though. The golden ticket is actually the integration. That's what I've found. Integration and service. How do you do this in the hedonic calendaring? Uh, Talk to us about that. It's in Stealing Mm -hmm. Fire. Yeah, it was just the idea of like,
0: okay, um, there's a, you know, the downside, because none of us are... uh, so un- well, few of us are so unself-aware that as we engage in the bliss junkie stuff, we're not like, hey, might be getting, might be getting a little overcooked here. Hey, might might need to tend to some of the details of life. Hey, am I doing too much? Those kind of things. And so most people pinball between indulgence and guilt-ridden abstinence. You know, I'm not going to smoke weed for six months. You know, and someone does that, but then they're like, okay, so at some part of their system is like, but wait, I've received insight. I received lack of drop of stress. There was something positive, so they go binge purge, binge purge, and it tends to be. Not that conscious, actually. We tend to load up a lot of crypto-Puritan guilt and judgment and assessment. It's kind of why we wrote the section on the pale of the body. Um, You know, am I cheating? Is this not right? Et cetera. So, you have people with a a lot of times an unintegrated relationship to their ecstatic practices. And it often gets a lot of cultural baggage and programming in there. So, the idea of hedonic calendaring is just to say, hey, um, rather than should I or shouldn't I, kind of an implicit moral judgment, just consider it as more often or less often, and you have daily practices, which are mostly positive, foundational yoga, meditation, clean eating, that kind of stuff. Weekly practices, like a Sabbath practice, which is, do I get a little micro blip of my reset? Do I get a peak experience that lets me feel warm, love, ex- you know, peace, calm, et cetera? Once a month, deeper dive, half a day, once a quarter, probably a full day, once a year, maybe an entire week, whereby yeah. I now, I have um, indulgence plus abstinence built in. And then ideally, you can then, you, it's, it's a little bit like trusting your ropes and anchors when you're climbing. You know. Because you've got the systems in place, you can go and tackle harder terrain um, and feel that there's, there's a way to come, and, you know, come back safely. And then the key with hedonic calendaring is, is to say um, one month a year of abstinence. Go cold turkey and watch every single one of your favorite habits or practices and just watch how twitchy you get. And watch how, you know, Ram Das always said, you know, like, if, if you're still thinking about getting high, when you're not getting high, you might as well still be getting high, you're not actually off it. Ah, uh,
1: <laughs> right? the wisdom hasn't been integrated. Yeah, yeah. So,
0: so like, if you've still got the urge or the tug, notice it. And then you just might say, oh, that practice should go into the left, you know, just move it to the right on your calendar. If I was doing it once a week. Maybe that was a little too much. Try it once a month. So, you basically have a way to calibrate your integration periods, and you have a way, and ideally, service, which is, is, is does it grow corn? Am I doing something of meaning in this 3D world with for myself and the people around me? How do you see yourself, I think you described it being a child or a servant of God. Mm. How do you see yourself as that now? Christ. I mean, trying. Um, I mean, I, I'm so retarded on those fronts that I am literally just trying to be a good husband and father and to try and be a good leader in our organization and that is like hands full I mean and, and I that's the thing like particularly with folks who are into polyamory let's say right where there's potential ethical and deeply intimate connections and responsibilities and obligations to lots of people I'm like sweet Jesus people how do you guys pull that off yeah like how? Do, like I get it if like that for some reason is your true dharma. Like that's what you've decided is your work in the world is to evolve relational formats. But if you've got any other work in the world, and or children, how on earth are you pulling that off? I don't think
1: it respects the beast and spirit corollary. I think the pendulum yeah. swings so hard to the novelty. Yeah, people get addicted to this polyamorous state. Literally, it's an addiction. Do you feel like, I know you have some work in sexuality that I haven't explored. There's not a mm. lot of it in the book. Mm-hmm. Is that going to be in the new book? Yeah, for sure. What
0: aspects can you share with us about that? Well, basically just gorilla tantra. Like what is the sexual yoga of becoming? So how do you basically use respiration, movement, and sexuality as a com- combinatory stack to create um, in dedicated relationships, so a true dyad? Um, how do you use that as the source material for radical accelerated growth and becoming and integration yeah and it's super badass um and has the checks and balances of dyadic relationship like if you're not connected to your partner you do not pass go you don't get to keep playing so for me the notion of like forget monogamy or polyamory because like there's a lot of like straw man arguments you know of like polyamorous folks take the piss out of old bed death stale monogamy and say don't need that of course no one no one's advocating for that and then moralistic monogamous say oh polyamory is lewd and crude and you know immoral it's like mm-hmm. forget all that like the question is is hieroscamos. let's talk about hierogamy the sacred marriage it doesn't matter what your relational formats are you can be banging one person forever you can bang serial monogamy you can be having loving conscious relations with lots of people that's go for it knock yourselves out the question is is how far through the garden gate are we getting like to me so the question of hierogamy is way more interesting than quibbling over who's got the perfect relational format. None of us do, all of us do. <laughs> it's, yes. it's all about the execution. So, the question is, is are we using communion uh, as, as a route to
1: transcendence or not? So, the, the fascinating thing for me, and we'll kind of end the show with this question, is this intersection of the physical and the emotional. Mm-hmm. Uh, you explored this, gosh, since you were 18, since you had that first experience. Yeah. Uh, how would you define wellness? How would you actually define wellness of the physical,
0: the emotional, and the spiritual in our modern world? Yeah. I mean, I would say yeah, the simplest is, is balance, but I mean, like integration between all three. Uh, and I think the simplest would be like the Vitruvian man, you know, Leonardo's notion that, that that image, you know, with his arms out and his legs out and fitting within the square, within the triangle, within the circle. Uh, the idea of we've got to do all of it. And that does feel somewhat new. Um, the balancing of the Apollonian, the Dionysian, you know, the idea of logic and reason and, and responsibility versus peak experience and those kind of things. We no longer just get to pursue extremes. Uh, it is on us to be integrating masculine, feminine, integrating heaven and earth, integrating agency and communion, integrating all of these things, imminence and transcendence. Like they're all, there. we have to do that now. And the good news is we've never had more tools and more access. And the bad news is we're on the fucking hook for it. We have no excuse. And that to me feels like that's the walk-on part in the war. You know, versus the lead role in the cage. Right now, there's a lot of blinky, shiny, gilded cages we're building for ourselves. And the reeling, really, you know, the the key to the cage is the key to the kingdom. Um, and we can we can unlock ourselves from our own self-imprisonment. And we can also um, we can also absolutely stand stand on Olympus. But it's a hell of a responsibility. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for being a narrator about this responsibility,
1: man. This has been incredible to come to your home. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And where can people support you? Obviously, Fro- Flow Genome Project yeah. is the website. Yeah. Uh, but where are you the most active? I mean, on social, where do you
0: operate the most? We've been, we do sort of weekly uh, weekly lives on Facebook on Friday. So, Friday afternoons, you can check us out, Flow Genome uh, on Facebook, that page. Uh, and then we kind of have a vibrant community uh, there as well. So, I would say there and there and Instagram uh, are probably the easiest places. And yeah, and we do, we do live events through the year as well.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much. For sure, man. forward slash radio and while you're at my house on the web join us in the wellness force community newsletter on that page and i'll send you four free guides around staying healthy with your eating moving and sleeping while you travel but don't let this conversation stop here join a group of people like you over at the wellness force community facebook page this is where we talk about the things that really matter we share our wins inspirations struggles and a lot more so join us tap on the show artwork on your phone and hit that purple link that says join the facebook group and i will welcome you at the door okay now you get to to go out into your world and create impact for the people that you care about. So until I see you again real soon, I'm wishing you love and wellness.